But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome back to episode 39 of the REACH podcast. Uh, if you have been a follower of the podcast for a while, you might remember back uh, five or six episodes ago, uh, maybe more now, I interviewed Alison Bethoff, who is an MD-PhD at Memorial Sloan Kettering and has done some really cool research looking at how exercise can modify the vasculature of tumours in the hopes that maybe it can increase uh, the efficacy of treatment or help better deliver treatment. Um, so some really, really cool basic science um, that we hope to someday kind of translate that into humans and gives us again a premise for working out during cancer treatment. Um, today's episode is with a guy called Ken Martin, who I've known Ken for a good few years now, um, but we were having a discussion on Twitter, and he put up a picture of, of him uh, cycling during chemotherapy. So not just kind of exercise during during treatment, literally uh, in the in the chemotherapy ward while he was, was receiving treatment. You kind of see the bag there beside him, um, kind of giving him the infusion and he's sitting up on a bike cycling so he took this and actually put it into his own practice all of his own accord he kind of did his own research and um, so really really cool stuff and uh, if you go into my twitter and I'll, I'll put up a bunch of links with the, the show notes here um or instagram whatever the picture will be up there and it's just a really really cool picture and a, a great visual Um so i said you know i have to get ken on to chat about him or to chat about this so uh, that's kind of what we did. We just kind of talked about um, Ken being, being diagnosed with uh, both Hodgkin's lymphoma and uh, stage 4 uh, follicular non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and just what he what he went through in terms of uh, approaching the doctors and saying, hey, I want to bring a stationary bike into the ward and start cycling and kind of uh, his mentality going through it and how he dealt with both exercise or dealt with both exercise and diet during it and kind of what he's been up to since He's a big uh, advocate of getting exercise as a standard of care. He's got a really strong background in exercise science. He has, he has uh, his master's in it and things like that. And he's looking to kind of, the way he puts it at the end of the episode, talking about putting a barcode on how we assess uh, exercise outcomes in the hopes that if we standardize all these measures, it may push us forward more quickly towards um, standardizing exercise as as a standard of care because we have these kind of uh, outcomes that can be you know translated all across the world so really cool conversation about ken's personal story and what he's been up to since and he also talks about how you can get in touch with him if you're interested in helping him and getting involved in, in trying to standardize these measures great guy and, and a great project to get involved with so other than that i hope you uh, enjoy the show and we'll chat to you soon when you put that picture of you cycling during chemo up on on twitter the other day it blew up i mean i was getting 
feedback from from patients from or yeah from survivors from oncologists and even researchers everyone you know really impressed with <laughs> your desire to to go through that and your resiliency to to kind of keep going with it um but before we get there just give us a quick overview of of you know your background uh, particularly with working out cancer where you're what where you're going now and kind of your your history of cancer yeah 2009 we were living in england and i started training uh uh, we're expats. My wife was working, so I had plenty of free time, and I decided to start training again, uh, board. Um, had a great time running around Winter Park quite a bit, and I started training pretty hard. And then uh, towards the end of the year, I got kind of skinny, and um, at that time, we got transferred to China at the same time. And once I arrived there, I just started feeling lousy. And thought it was just the food because my wife is she's half Chinese and so all the kids are part Chinese, but I was the only one who uh, isn't. So I just assumed it was something about me that just wasn't adapting to the environment over there. Uh, so just kind of lived with it for a little while until eventually by the end of 2009, I got tired just going up a flight of steps and felt like I just run a, a hill sprint. And I just said I had, something's not right and went into the local doctor. And uh, finally got diagnosed that I had uh, Hodgkin's, Hodgkin's lymphoma and I was stage four for follicular non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, at the same time. So from there, I flew to the States and started treatment at the Hutch and then later transferred to the Simon IU Cancer Center um, in Indianapolis, where we live now. How old were you when you were diagnosed? Uh, 50, 51, I believe. So when you said you started training again. Were you yeah. previously inactive for a, for a number of years and then you kind of picked it back up? Well, I, I retired officially from running in 1994. And then after that, I didn't do, I ran a little bit until uh, about 1998, just sort of jogged and stayed fit with my wife. Um, and then uh, we had kids and uh, I decided to start playing some basketball to get kind of back in shape. Uh, but he asked me to play and I used to play in high school. So then I just started to become kind of a, you know, a real gym rat pay, playing maybe three league games a week, you know, playing five days a week, uh, pickup games, whatnot, and had a blast. So I really stopped running and uh, just started playing basketball all the way up until 2007 when we moved to England. You, I mean, even though you weren't specifically running, you were still pretty active throughout. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was still pretty fit. Actually, you know, just from playing basketball, I could go out and run a 5K and I was probably in my late forties and about, uh, 17, almost 17 flat. Uh, but, but I tell you doing that, uh, felt like I'd finished a marathon. I, I, I walked off the course and for a sore for a week. So it just shows you the difference, uh, specificity between basketball and running. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So with that first diagnosis, I mean, how, first of all, how did it hit you? And you have to move back to the States and start treatment. And, and what was that like in terms of you know, just getting the diagnosis and then going through treatment the first time around. Well, living in China, we had a driver, and, but he was there for my wife uh, with the company. So I had a bike and I'd bike up to the shops, uh, get some things or bike the kids to school and end up biking to my doctor's appointments quite a bit. Uh, so I was being active in that sense and I was still running a little bit, although you know, the air pollution was pretty bad to, there. So I really questioned whether I should actually be outdoors running. So I, I ran indoors on a treadmill a little bit, but I was, I was getting pretty slow. I was running three miles in about 10 minutes and I just thought, oh boy, this is, you know, I, I, I'm really, really down. Something's really getting to me. Um, and then once I got to Seattle, uh, 
uh, I, I didn't even think about exercise. I just thought about the treatments, but I, I used activity to kind of test myself. Like I, I think I mentioned to you the, after my first chemotherapy treatment, I went up a long flight of stairs in the uh, yeah. apartment building I was living in just to see how my legs respond. And, uh, the fatigue wasn't quite the same. So I thought, oh, this stuff is starting to work already. And so every day I would just go up the stairs and, you know, just keep check, checking the legs and see how it feel, felt. And I, you know, go down the stairs a lot. And then I'd walk around my neighborhood looking uh, for a place to eat every day, things like that. course of the six cycles well the chemotherapy i could tell it was working because the fatigue in my legs was going away so i was like oh this is this is doing what it's supposed to do my legs were getting stronger uh the real issues i had was just with uh gi distress you know the lining of your your stomach and intestines and esophagus and all that that gets messed up with chemotherapy um so that's what i really had to contend with is trying to recover from one cycle to the next. And just in terms of, uh, trying to get my, my, uh, GI tract settled down. And eventually, uh, I got to the point where it might only be like just a couple of days before the next cycle, before I really felt like, uh, my stomach was normal again. So, um, I was kind of maintaining weight, but I was really just uncomfortable quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, just from that, but I never got nauseous or anything like that. So, you know, it wasn't an issue for me. Didn't lose my hair. Uh, and we lived in a uh, temporary uh, three-story townhouse. So I was up and down stairs all the time and moving the family in and out of the uh, new apartment as we got all our stuff back from China. And how was your how was your mentality throughout it all? You you were pretty headstrong about it or how did you kind of uh, approach it? Well, it's strange. When we were in China, I started looking at the diagnoses online and that upset me. Uh, and I said, well, this is pointless. I'm not going to do this anymore because it's just stressing me out. And I thought, well, the last thing I need is to stress myself anymore right now. So I just forgot about, you know, what the diagnosis, uh, prognosis would be and percentages and all that and thought, okay, I'll just, if the things get bad, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. But for now, I'll just take it a day at a time. And that's kind of how I looked at it in terms of, uh, every day going through chemotherapy, uh, getting ready for the next cycle. What can I eat? How's my stomach doing? What meds do I need to take? That kind of thing. Uh, and then, other than that, just kind of a normal act life. Uh, taking the kids to and from school, starting to look for a new house to move into. You know, just kind of paying bills. You know, watching a little uh, basketball on TV. That normal stuff. You know, towards the end of or towards the start of 2011, you started running again. When was your when did your treatment for, for the first diagnosis end and when did you start to kind of get back into quote unquote normal activities? Well, I finished in uh, August of 2010 and uh, then I just was on a watch and wait, watch, uh, watch and wait program and started, uh, you know, getting back, just sort of walking around and thought, well, I, I need to probably do something uh, and started jogging again. I almost, I think the probably January 1st of 2011. And it really didn't take me long to get kind of back in pretty good shape. I was really surprised. Uh, but at that time, I I didn't really get the connection between exercise and cancer yet. Uh, and I sort of, like most patients, I kind of looked at what could I could do uh, in terms of nutrition to see how I might help myself. And after a while, I, I kind of got 
to the point where I said there's so many just different nutrients and conjugates and metabolites that it's just, you know, I'm not going to make sense of this. You know, you, 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 I have time to get a PhD in this stuff. <laughs> and, and I said, well, I already kind of understand exercise uh, physiology. So I ended up sort of saying, well, let's take a better look at that. And that's when I sort of started trying to look at the uh, exercise oncology uh, research and what we had at that time. And that's when I came across some uh, Lee Jones's work, and that really, really got me going and changed my my focus. So yeah, just to give the readers a kind of background, if you go back to episode I think thirty two that I did with Alison Bethoff, uh, she worked a lot with Lee Jones to kind of demonstrate yeah. that um, exercise can improve tumor vasculature in the hopes that it may uh, complement treatment and improve the efficacy of a lot of cancer treatments, chemotherapy in particular. So you kind of found this on your own, um, yeah. which, to be honest, is not the standard way I hear a lot of patients find out about this stuff. You know what I mean? It takes someone with an intense interest in it because even just to digest that type of literature, you do need kind of a basal level of understanding of physiology and how that works. Um, so kind of what when you found that, what's your, what's your thoughts around that and, and how your attitude towards exercise was changed? Well, I just knew from the tr nutrition stuff is that people can say a lot of things, but well, what's the science really say? And you, you got to be kind of skeptical and you got to, you got to look and after being sort of, uh, inundated with all the nutrition stuff and started looking at the exercise research and most of it I came across first was, uh, observational stuff, uh, quality of life stuff and most of it in breast cancer and, the answers I was looking for just, I wasn't finding. I so I just, ah, this can't be right. I, I'm just not be looking correctly, or I just don't know what I should be looking for. So I just kind of kept pursuing and pursuing and pursuing, and finally stumbled across uh, a comment from Lee about exercise uh, improving the vasculature uh, of tumors in these mouse models. And at first, it just scared me. I thought, oh my God, I'm doing the wrong thing because I yeah. thought, like most patients, you want to choke off the blood supply to a tumor, which we still don't really know yet. It it could be for some tumor types or subtypes. Uh, but their mouse models just bling, just made complete sense to me. I thought, oh my God, this is like uh, aerobic endurance training. This is what happens when you improve the vasculature of your muscles. And that's how you can get improvements in, in performance. You get better capillary, you know, uh, growth and beds and you get, you know, uh, better re uh, removal of waste products and uh, better oxygenation and better nutrition and better endurance and you get oxidative enzymes and mitochondria you get all these changes and i thought oh this this is really interesting so i just started trying to find as much as i could about tumor vasculature and i read a lot of uh, rakesh jane's work from uh harvard and uh, peter carmelette uh, does some of that work too and i learned a lot from those guys and i just started trying to understand as best i could uh, as a lay person again i i didn't quite complete my master's in exercise science i went through a divorce so i never really actually did the thesis uh and i wasn't great in lab anyway so i wouldn't say i was you know some stellar brilliant uh student anyway but i just found this really fascinating and uh thought, wow this is something maybe you could use exercise as a tool to improve uh your outcomes and i i also looked at the uh new chemotherapies or therapeutic agents that were coming out. And you could see that sometimes uh, drug resistance would improve, uh, develop pretty quickly. So I thought, well, geez, maybe the first couple of doses are really, really important that you need to have a good response. And that's where I thought, well, my God, if you can 
improve the vasculature so you get a better perfusion of the drugs the first time out, maybe you get a better response rate that first time. And maybe that's what's really important. I, I just said, well, it, it's a theory. I, there certainly wasn't anything out there in, in humans. And I thought, well, this is, this is really interesting. So yeah. I just kind of kept plugging away. So there's an interesting point in, you know, 2011, you're kind of back running relatively healthy for all intents and purposes. And then diagnosed then again shortly thereafter. But in that, where did work at out cancer come in? Was that in that interim period or was that with the second diagnosis? At what point did you set up work at out cancer? Well, in 2011, I went to the uh, American Institute for Cancer Research uh, meeting in uh, D.C., I think it was. And Lee was talking there. And I talked to him briefly afterwards. And, uh, you know, I just thought the, the research just isn't quite where we'd like to see it go. It's not like in cardiology. Uh, and he said, yeah, that's, you know, and I could see that's where he was headed, you know, and he has a good cardiology background. So um, I thought, well, I, I should probably try to see if I could get some money and see if I can contact some people I used to know at Nike or wherever and, and try to get some money to help support uh, this kind of research. And then uh, maybe even fund some uh, PhD programs or postdocs because I thought, well, if you get some people out and start their own lab, that may just be even better because they could do decades and decades worth of research. Uh, so I, that's why I tried to venture it into at that time. And I put a lot of time in trying to fundraise uh, through 2012. And uh, that's when I came up with the idea that, uh, gosh, I, I could probably run and maybe gain some notoriety for the uh, foundation. And I, I decided in 2012 to try to break the 50 to 54 year old age group world record in the mile, uh, which is about 425. So I spent most of the year training for that, you know, training pretty hard. And I was probably in about that shape by December of 2012 when I, I, I just thought, hey, I think I think cancer's back because I started having cachexia again. Just before you were going to get, you got that feeling your VO2 was 75. Yeah, yeah, it was that 50, is insane. 54. Yeah, insane. amazing. I couldn't believe it. That's interesting that you kind of have this intuitive feeling. Did that, did how you feel with the first diagnosis or close to it kind of give you that telling sign and that, well, this feels very similar to last yep. time? Absolutely. Uh, when I lose five pounds, that's a big deal. And I was, I'm already pretty lean. When I used to run, I, well, I used to like a, a six uh, site athlete uh, body fat measurement. Uh, with the calipers. And I think the sun, sum of six sites in terms of millimeters was only 18 millimeters, uh, you know, subscapular thigh, mid axillary pectoral, I forget what else they were. And you know, that's not a lot of millimeters of fat. And I think it worked out around 3% body fat. And I was always the leanest guy on uh, the Nike club I belonged to. I was just that way my whole life. So if I lose five pounds, it's, it's muscle mass. And I could just tell like, boy, I've gotten skinny. I look kind of weird. And, uh, I was down about five pounds at that time. And that's sort of what happened, uh, the year before, oh, two, uh, 2010, but that was, I'd lost about 10, 10 pounds that time. So then you're diagnosed the second time about a month later. Yeah. Well, this was through the holiday season. So trying to get my GP to believe that something was actually up was kind of a, a bit of a chore. Really? Yeah, because I'd come in a number of times throughout the uh, couple of years I'd been seeing him after I finished uh, chemotherapy. One time it was really nothing, and then the next time it was really something. But um, 
he, he still kind of sort of thought I was becoming a bit of a hypochondriac. And, you know, I kind of questioned myself, too. I thought, well, it's just really something. But what I learned from the first time, because in China, the doctor didn't believe that anything was wrong with me. So it took a couple of times of me going back and saying, look, this just is not right. Yeah. And then when he drew blood, my CRP and C-reactive, I mean, uh, said rates were just at the top. You know, he said that they don't go any higher. And he said, uh, I think you might have a lymphoma. So then he sent me off for scans. Um, so anyway, this time again with the, with the, uh, the cachexia and the fatigue. And I said, you know, I think it's back. And I was trying to get my doctor to do a blood test. And eventually, uh, he decided to do one. And I even told the, the drawing nurse, I said, look, would you, could you check said rate on there? Because he hadn't put it on the, uh, the sheet to be te tested. He just wanted to check uh, potassium or something. Well, we had to wait through the holiday season or something uh, for the blood work to come back. And sure enough, said rate was high. And he wouldn't have checked it if I wouldn't have asked the nurse to put it on there. And I might not, you know, I'd had to go somewhere else, you know, or I might have progressed even worse. Uh, so insane. fine. Yeah, yeah. So I, I never went back to him. Um, <laughs> uh, and so anyway, from there, we decided to go ahead and get a, find another doctor. And we set up to have scans. And sure enough, I was uh, uh, had a new cancer. Uh, some of the flicker nodes had transformed into diffuse large B cell lymphoma. So we had the biopsies done, which confirmed all those. So uh, at that time, we already decided, look, uh, you need chemotherapy, but the best way to cure this new uh, aggressive B cell lymphoma is to have a stem cell transplant. And by the way, that's the only known cure for follicular lymphoma. So we can maybe get them both with one shot. But in the meantime, since I'd already started looking into the research in 2011 and was training and still looking into it in 2012, I knew as I was kind of feeling lousy in December of 2012 and becoming cachexic, like, look, if this is cancer, even though I feel crummy, I need to keep exercising because if that tumor vascular normalization is actually occurring, I don't want to stop exercising because then the tumor will rest control of how it develops. But if I can exercise, maybe I can actually influence it growing in a more normal uh, manner so that maybe the, if I have chemotherapy coming, I'll have a better response. So that's kind of through that Christmas time in December and into 2013, I said, look, even though I don't feel good, I'm going to still go get on a bike. And I switched from running to getting on a bike. So I would still get a workout, but not burn as many calories, you know, just strategies like that. How often were you working out, say a week? Well, I was riding a bike. I would, I tried to be smart. I said, okay, I'll do six days a week. I'll take a day off, a day of rest, you know, Sabbath day, just give your body rest. So, so okay, it makes sense. But six days a week, I'd uh, make sure I got on that exercise bike. And then I'd try to do intervals maybe on two of those days, uh, you know, just one minute up, maybe two minutes up, m most four minutes up, and then come down for a recovery uh, interval in between a minute or so. Stuff like that. This brings us to uh, the the second round of chemo, or the second time you're going through chemo, and this time yeah. you're on the bike. Yeah. And we talk about exercise during chemotherapy, as in you can have, or, or we try to advocate for people to exercise, uh, you know, during active therapy. But you brought it to a different level in terms of exercising during your infusion. Yeah. Which was insane. So I have a <laughs> have a barrage of questions, but the first one is given how a lot of the research is predominantly in animals, 
we don't have full clinical data yet to kind of demonstrate this efficacy in humans. Walk me through the conversation with your oncologist or with whoever was in the the uh, hospital to to allow you to bring the bike in to cycle during infusions and how did that conversation start? Well, it sounds a little more interesting than it really might be because this was uh, etop, uh, rituximab plus uh, ESHAP, which is uh, uh, a regimen that's done at low dose 24 hours a day, four or five days. So it's not as if I'm going in for higher dose chemotherapy over maybe three or four hours. It's right. continuous and I'm getting saline solution all the time. So just walking around the halls is, you know, I'm getting exercise in and I made sure I was doing that. But actually sort of trying to, I specifically wanted to try to get up to a certain systolic blood pressure. And that's why I wanted the exercise bike. And there was nothing on the oncology ward. In fact, I had to go down into the psychiatric ward basement uh, with a, somebody the first time. Uh, <laughs> And I was escorted down there, and we found an old dilapidated Airdyne bike that had the uh, the handles that move yeah. and had a, had a big front wheel. And you know how impossible those are to really do kind of a work. You can get yeah. a workout, but your RPMs are so low, you just can't push that thing. So, And there were no toe clips on it, and uh, the monitor was broken. So I just had to sort of guess just off effort for about half an hour just to get it kind of a nice steady state ride in on this this bike and I had a a a a pick line in which was really really uncomfortable and one that failed on the other arm so both arms hurt so I didn't want to use those stupid handlebars yeah. that move back and forth so I just held onto the central console and with no toe clips just kind of pedaled this Airdyne bike for about a half an hour then they found an old Monarch uh, ergometer bike in a hallway somewhere and uh, in a closet, and then brought it to my room. So I had it in my room. They wouldn't let me go over to cardiology, uh, where I said, oh, I just let's just go over there. They have they have equipment, but they said, oh, that's in another building. You can't leave this building and go to another one. So that's that's why I got one in my room. And I thought, well, if he brought it to my room, there was never discussion about it. Uh, I thought, well, he must be okay with it. And I thought, well, maybe it's the low dose treatment that I'm getting that he's not as concerned about it. And you know, you know. I, I have a friend who does uh, breast cancer uh, physical therapy, and I mentioned this to her, and she posted on a listserv of hers, and there was a lot of criticism, and I, I understand that. And I said, look, I, I know I could be taking a risk here, but I really just tried to do modern intensity, a moderate training program. I didn't try to go nuts. I said, well, I don't want to screw this chemotherapy up, but I also thought, well, this could this have a, you know, an impact on my outcome? I thought, well, it's low-dose chemotherapy. I'm only doing a half an hour a day, and the rest of the time I'm walking. So how much does that half hour do? I don't really know. So were you in your you were in your own room? You weren't in a chemo ward because it was kind of continuous. Yeah, I was in uh, my own room, and I was on the, the ward because uh, I had to be there 20. They have to observe you because that, that regimen of uh, rituximab plus ESHAP is pretty, pretty strenuous. But my doctor said, I think you could handle this. This is why I'm giving you that. So he knew I was pretty fit. Uh, an article had come out in the paper. No, not yet. It hadn't come out about me wanting to next cycle through chemotherapy. So we talked about it. So he knew I was adamant about it. So, uh, yeah, just gave me the bike, you know. What were the, I mean, people are checking on you all the time, obviously. What, surely the nurses coming in and, and you know, maybe the, the PCAs or whoever they are, are going like, this, this fellow's a lunatic. He's cycling while he's getting an infusion. What was that kind of reaction? 
Well, it's interesting. I, I actually really enjoyed one of my nurses. She came in and she asked a lot of questions and I tried to answer them. Um, and then years later, uh, her aunt got chemotherapy. She contacted me and said, hey, what, what was the training program you did? I'd like to, my wife, my aunt's interested in this. And so I just said, well, this is why I did it. I said, I, I can't say do this. I can say this is why I did this and this is what I did. I said, we just don't have the data. I, I'm an N of one. That, that, that means nothing. I said, but this is why I did it, and this is what I did. And her aunt did it, and she's doing well now. And then the nurse, she ended up uh, getting on an exercise program herself and dropped, I think she said, 40 pounds. Very so cool. So I was like, oh, man. So she was a believer. Uh, I still couldn't get an exercise bike. Uh, I was trying to buy one and get one for that ward. And as far as I know, they still have that old Monarch one somewhere. But um I thought, gee, I should get him a nice uh, treadmill or something to put on that uh, hall. But One of the things, just as you're talking there, that I really appreciate about your perspective is that um, even though this, you know, you feel like this worked for you and you had your own training program, you still remain cautious about telling, you know, I'm, I'm sure even at the time people are saying, you know, why are you doing this? And you have to be a strong enough advocate to convince people why you're doing it, but also have restraints in terms of, being almost a charlatan and saying everyone should do this and it absolutely works. So I appreciate the perspective in, in being balanced in your approach and understanding that your story is incredible. It's still anecdotal right now in terms of that. Yeah. One. yeah. And that's what I, I remember last year, if you remember in 2017, three studies came out uh, showing that uh, I think two of them were breast cancer and one was sarcoma, that the, the outcomes uh, actually weren't good uh, in these three studies. Uh, with in my mouse models uh, with exercise, and they said let's let's take another look at this. And I think Lee Jones was involved in one of those. Uh, they did subtypes for breast cancer. One subtype it had no change uh, effect on tumor uh, growth. Another one it actually reduced tumor growth. Then in one subtype I think it was low cotylin uh, that it actually increased tumor growth. So like oh okay, so uh, it's nice to hear from some you know big people that like. Hey, we, we really need to keep looking more specific at uh, types of exercise, types of tumors, and, you know, just really see what's out there. And uh, right now we just don't have enough uh, information to really say this is the protocol we should do. Uh, in general, we can say stay active, keep moving, try to get your minutes a week, you know, moderate intensity, some higher intensity, that kind of stuff. But it, it, it coming from an athlete's background like this is like saying you know if you want to run the boston marathon you start running three times a week like well okay well yeah. I, I want to get more specific than that and that's kind of what i'm interested in in trying to see comes out of research and you can start to see it coming out now like well this is, it's getting better and better all the time more specific so in that i mean you you are predominantly data driven so what was your your workout regimen if you're getting chemo every day it was it was 30 minutes on the bike every day yeah. Um, and you're made, you know, walk us through that kind of protocol day to day. Here's my training. Well, this, this, I mean, some people can kind of research this, this guy themselves. Uh, this out of, came out of Japan, started in, I think, 1981, uh, a guy named Suzuki. He did a study on uh, hypo, hypertensive induced uh, chemotherapy infusion that they would uh, administer angiotensin 2 and raise the blood pressure to, I think it was 150 systolic. And that it, it showed an uh, increase of about five-fold in tumor blood flow. 
And then they kept doing subsequent studies after that. And um, they did it for years. And I remember writing to one of the guys. They did one on liver cancer. Uh, and he, I thought it was amazing results. And uh, and he said he didn't know why it just didn't get much uh, play. And he just moved on to some other research. But that's what sort of formed why I was exercising on the bike. I thought, well, on the bike, you can keep your, your rhythm pretty steady. And, uh, and I should be able to get a blood pressure uh, because I'm on that bike rather than running. And so we had the blood pressure cuff on me. And I thought, well, okay, if this is true, I want to try to get my uh, blood pressure about 140 to 150. And if that's supposed to be a, a level uh, that you can improve blood flow into tumors because they lack uh, angiotensin receptors, I think it is, uh, there's less of them. Uh, so that's why I was doing it. And it makes sense is that, well, you know, in, during exercise, uh, more blood needs to go to the, the muscle and be maintained in the brain and the liver, but it's reduced at other places. So other veins, uh, other vessels, um, restrict, but the tumors, if they lack some angiotensin receptors, then they will stay dilated. So more blood flows into it. And that was kind of what I got out of following all these people's research. And I thought, okay, if, if lymphoma, which is sort of different because it's in lymph vessels and lymph flow is mainly from uh, muscle pumping and uh, every time you breathe, uh, the negative pressure with the breath uh, helps to move lymph fluid. But the really interesting thing I remember from a, a Finnish study is that lymph flow is specific to the muscles that you know, are being exercised. Like you can exercise one leg and you can get more lymph flow out of the vessels that drain that leg and the other one, uh, it's not increased as much. So I thought, well, you know, all my, uh, most of my tumors were in my thoracic duct. And if I'm exercising my legs, that's, you know, draining into my thoracic duct. So am I increasing the lymph flow, including the chemotherapy into those tumors during exercise? It makes sense, but I'm just speculating, but yeah. that, that was kind of, that was kind of theory. And I thought, okay, I don't know if, uh, lymph, uh, lymphoma tissue, uh, tumors, excuse me, have angiotensin, uh, receptors on them. I don't think so because it's not kind of controlled like that with vasoconstriction. It's sort of different. It's smooth muscle contractions every now and then. And then, like I said, muscle pumping. So it's a different mechanism, but I thought, well, at least if exercise is improving the lymph flow, am I passing more chemotherapy through my tumors and less to the periphery? So less peripheral, peripheral neuropathy, things like that. You know, am I metabolizing it more quickly? And is that a bad thing? I don't know. I, I talked with, uh, a pulmonary specialist who had cancer and he exercised on a bike through chemotherapy because he wanted to try and clear the chemo quicker, uh, to prevent the uh, toxic side effects. So, uh, well, he had some theory of his own. So, well, you know, he took a chance with it, I guess as well, but yeah, I don't really know. How were your, your energy levels during this, this round or these cycles where did you find your energy fluctuating throughout the course of the, the treatment or you were pretty stable throughout? That's a good question. Uh, I think I was pretty stable. I mean, I get up every morning and order breakfast and then go for a walk around the halls. And then by the time I got back, breakfast would be there. Uh, I'd, I'd stay out of the bed unless they had to change dressing or something. Uh, and I, I, you know, I'd sit in a chair, do emails, 
do whatnot, walk the halls a lot, lots and lots of hall walking. And then every afternoon, just like uh, in training days, I'd plan my afternoon workout uh, at a certain time. So my whole day was planned around that workout when I would eat. So I wouldn't have a bunch of food in my stomach. And uh, and I just look forward to my workout that day and, um, you know, get into the gear and, and get on the bike and put on some music and get the, get the RPMs up. It was about 80 RPMs. I tried to keep it fairly high. And uh, I don't think that thing had been calibrated in forever, that old Monarch bike. So <laughs> the, the tensiometer was kind of kind of wonky. And you could see it drift up, you know. So I always try to keep a certain effort on there. So I don't know how many watts I was really pushing. How was your, your nutrition to trail? And how did you plan your, your eating around the workouts? Well, during chemotherapy, you can kind of, lose your appetite. So I just, I just want to eat whatever, uh, seems appealing to me. And so I'll try to get spicy stuff, uh, salty stuff, things like that, and keep some protein up the carbohydrate vegetables. I mean, this, once I went into uh, transplant, I mean, just, you're limited. You, they got to cook everything. You can't have fresh fruits and vegetables. So, um, but you just got to try to get stuff in you and keep your calories up. You know, and you go into, I had some carnation instant breakfast smoothies and, you know, it's easy on my stomach and just try to keep your calories up. So I didn't lose too much weight, but, um, I had gotten kind of skinny, but yeah, it's, it's, it messes up your, your digestive tract. So that messes up how much you can eat. And, and then your, your taste is messed up a bit too with nutrition. But I just, just tried to eat pretty as well as I could. But also I said, Hey, I just got to get some food in me sometime. I did sneak in some Kentucky fried chicken into the hospital once. And nice. Greasy, salty, just that. Ah, oh, that sounds good. And and uh, my nurse, she said, "You go for it." So, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. I don't, re- I don't eat it on a regular basis, but I thought, hey, I need the calories, and the salty, spicy stuff just sounds good. And so, yeah. You know what? A lot of oncologists, and uh, I'll have a couple of more registered dietitians on the podcast this year. All have that similar mindset in. Uh, they appreciate that the nutrition therapy in cancer can be improved with with better guidelines and and how to uh, eat during cancer therapy. But they also appreciate, you know, in in theory we need to improve it. But there's some days where you just need calories, and yeah. if how you're going to get calories is that greasy food, that might be better than nothing at all, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, I was surprised to see the amount of professionals have that kind of perspective in. You know, you can talk about the theory all you want, but when you're faced with someone going through chemo who's facing severe nausea, everything tastes like crap, and they just want this salty fast yeah. food. Go yeah, for I, it. Yeah, I, I, I tried to eat a lot of salmon, and I'd, I'd get rice and try to get brown rice if I could get it, and put a lot of soy sauce, the salt. Uh, I mean, I was on IV fluids all the time. I mean, gee, the first two days, they put 10 pounds of fluid weight on me. Then they gave me Lasix to take it off. Uh, messed up my electrolytes, you know, so it, it's a bit of an art still, uh, chemotherapy in a sense. Um, but yeah, I, I, I remember after marathons, I, you probably asked a lot of, uh, runners, what do you feel like having after marathon? Like, Oh, a, a greasy, uh, hamburger and fries. You just, <laughs> yeah. you want some salt and some grease. Uh, you just ran 26 miles. And so, you know, maybe there's a similarity there to what your body's telling you and chemotherapy as well a couple of different interesting things you also said to me one <laughs> i mean you talk about boredom you were mentioning how you would count the tiles in the wards talk us through that and 
I mean, it really does emphasize how bored you were to count the tiles to measure distance. Well, uh, I was asking the nurse there, and that's just this is when I was then in April 2013. I was in uh, the isolation ward uh, for the stem cell transplant, and I it was kind of a small hall. Uh, rectangular hall. I said, well, do you know how many laps it is around it? And they said, we think it's around 25 or something per mile. And she said, well, those tiles are 12 inch tiles. And I said, okay. So I went out and counted uh, a lap <laughs> in tiles and it was, I forget how many, 200 and some tiles, what 12 inch tiles. So I did the math and it was just about 26 laps, uh, you know, with your uh, infusion trolley in tow. Uh, so I said, okay. So I, I would just count you know, once I got the tiles counter, I knew the distance, and then I could calculate how far a mile was. So, I'd, I'd, again, I'd have a, a mile walk uh, before breakfast, and then throughout the day, I'd go out and do, you know, another 10, 20 laps, number two or three times a day. Uh, and then each afternoon, I'd have my treadmill workout, and this time I was walking on the treadmill. So 26 laps for a mile. Would you make eye contact with anyone on the 26th lap? I feel oh, like yeah. just be... <laughs> you're going by the nurse's station every time, lap, yeah. 26 times per mile. You're going by that station. I just had to be careful, and they had to look, you know, coming out of a hall, uh, a doorway that I wouldn't, you know, crash into <laughs> anybody. Yeah. Uh, you, you go by some of the same rooms, and people still lying in the bed. Then there was another guy just down the hall from me. He was out walking, and he was actually timing me. He was a great guy, and he still he, he did really well. But he went through a period where he got an infection, and I didn't really see him for about a week. He was intubated in a you know, pretty distressful situation. But uh, eventually he got up and was walking around again. And uh, you know, we still stay in touch to this day. Another guy w- would be out walking. And then uh, a time or two, there'd be maybe another patient in the, um, in the fitness room. We had our own fitness room on the isolation ward with a treadmill and two exercise bikes. And, one of them was uh, broken, wasn't really working, the bikes, but the treadmill was fine. Yeah, because you said a, a couple of people tried to, to work out as well. Um, how were those conversations? Were people trying to, to go through uh, workouts for their own kind of health there as well? Well, yeah, they, they didn't have an agenda like I did. They just said, oh, I just want to try to, you know, stay active and makes me feel better. Uh, but I, I didn't see them on a regular basis or else maybe they were there when – a time when I wasn't out in the hall, so I didn't notice them. But uh, I, I was certainly in the minority the, uh, before uh, transplant when I was getting chemotherapy um, in early 2013. I mean, I was the only one on the halls. Um, I think one other person maybe once in a two-week period. And But at the uh, infusion, uh, stem cell transplant in isolation ward, uh, me and this other guy and then a, another person, I think. So three of us, pretty regular walkers, yeah. So you said you had almost a near complete response the second time around to, to chemo, which you had some of your best PET scans. Was that um, best for you or did your oncologist notice any kind of remarkable uh, results with your, with your cycles? Well, after 2010, Whenever I had, uh, I had a couple of follow-up PET scans after that, and you could always see uh, a couple of tumors and some low SUV activity, like a 3.2 or 2.7, and maybe a five millimeter or centimeter. Is it centimeter? I forget the, the size of these. One, one was still kind of a, the biggest one. It shrunk a lot, but it was still there. So there was always some activity there. But after this scan. Uh, 
2013, when I was, you know, really getting on the bike, there was, they couldn't detect anything. They could, they couldn't see these old tumors that they could always see and no SUV activity. So what that meant, uh, and you, you know, you have to get a response before you move on to stem cell transplant. Um, you can't go in there with an active cancer that you just, they won't do it. They want to ablate you and and take out your immune system while you've got an active cancer. So that was, uh, you know, it's called a near complete response because I hadn't waited six months yet. It had only been like two weeks since we finished treatment. So you can't, I guess, technically call it a complete response because it's called near complete because it's not far enough out to call it a complete response. I think that's how you technically say it. So that's why I, I say that. But uh, looking at the thing, it's like, yeah, there was no de- evidence of disease, uh, no SGB activity uh, in the other spots. So that was, for me, that was the best. And the, the doctor said, hey, good response. Uh, we can now move. We had already scheduled my third cycle uh, of treatment, but he said, we don't need to do that. Now we can move on to transplant. And uh, and we'll do that in about five weeks. So I was like, great. Now let's get in shape for transplant. <laughs> you know, I've just finished some pretty arduous chemotherapy i've got five weeks to get myself back in shape and in in those five weeks i went from walking to running again to where i was running the last two weeks before uh transplant which is now about almost five years ago now yeah uh uh-huh how's everything going since you're all all good for all intents and purposes yeah uh one of the oncologists uh the transplant uh uh doctors he said if you get to about 22 months and these two uh, lymphomas haven't come back. That's that's a pretty good sign. You're you're cured, and they're, and they're not going to come back. But you know you like to get out to five years, so it'll be five years in April. And uh, I really didn't have any graft versus host disease. Uh, first hundred days were pretty smooth. Um, I didn't have any graft versus host disease. Uh, I dropped down to about fifty percent donor after about ninety days, and then we started getting some. Uh, donor lymphocyte infusions, uh, a couple tablespoons, then another month or 60 days later, uh, some more. Then eventually you get a small sort of baggy full. Uh, they increase the, uh, the exponent by one or something every time um, in terms of the number of cells you get. Because uh, they were concerned that I dropped down to 50%. They didn't want to lose the, trans- the transplant. But I kind of liked it because I thought, well, I don't have graft-versus-host disease. And um, and he says, look, for 30 days, uh, you were 100%. So we've had people drop down to 10%, and they've been alive 10 years with no cancer. So it may only take 30 days for those cells to go in there and kill the, the lymphoma. We just don't know. Graft-versus-lymphoma can occur. So you don't really know if I was even cured. And if you drop down to 50%, can I live the rest of my life this way and be cured? I was willing to kind of, let's go with this, but they kind of like to get you back up to hundred percent. So that's why we added some more of my brother's stem cells. And then at about day 205, I got graft versus host disease and um, got on the prednisone to control that. And then we came down a little too quick, got a severe uh, internal reaction and I lost a gallbladder. They, they took one out. Uh, so then we started prednisone again. It came down a lot slower and then I've been off almost three years, all medications now since then. Yeah, there's a lot of pretty uh, potent effects of stopping prednisone yeah. mean, abruptly or immediately. They need that kind of gradual dose reduction to yeah. uh, to kind of mitigate some of those. 
so I want to really talk about what you've got going on now and what the goal of uh, what you're submitting to the LOANC. Um, so tell us a little bit about the background in, in the exercise IT, why you're doing it, what you hope to get out of it. Well, I think it was 2011 or 12, uh, Lee Jones and I had a conference call with uh, some people at ASCO uh, who helped with the CancerLink uh, database. And we wanted to find out how can we get physical activity uh, measurements into the cancer link. And one of the people there said, well, you need to have standardized, internationally standardized uh, encoded measures. And that's just like, oh, okay, wow. Because they wanted it to fit into the health level seven sort of structure, uh, architecture for, uh, for data. Uh, and at that time, we thought, well, what, international coding, standardized coding, what the, what the heck, you know. So yeah. that's, what we, well, that's what we've got to bring them. So, uh, you know, Lee's a busy guy. And I said, I just said, I'm going to keep checking into this. And as I looked around, I looked at ICD-9 codes, ICD-10 codes. I thought, well, maybe we can carve out a section of those codes and use them for exercise and ask there. And people said, uh, no, those are mainly for just uh, billing purposes and classifying this is what the disease is, this is the cause of it, that sort of thing. Uh, and then I came across uh, the LOINC uh, registry, which is actually managed right here in Indianapolis by the Regan Street Institute. And it was first started by a guy named Clem McDonald, who's with the National Library of uh, Medicine. And they wanted to standardize uh, laboratory uh, measures, you know, blood work, that kind of stuff. And they said, you know, we want to have a, a unique code for an, an for an unambiguous measure. That there are too too much ambiguity in measures, so we need to better identify what the measure is. So they have all these different parts to the name of a measure, all the way down to what the unit is, the timing of it, uh, is it uh, reported, is it measured, is it estimated, is it specific to a survey instrument. Um, the scale of it, uh, the finding, I mean, this, it's really extensive how you can really unambiguously define a measure. And so I started searching through that and you'll find some measures from uh, promise, which is, you know, patient recorded out measure, outcome measurement information system. Uh, they've got some, uh, physical function measures. And I contacted one of the, the promise, uh, guys who helped, uh, set up that, and asked him, why did you uh, use LOINC? And he says, well, because it's an open standard uh, registry and these are unique codes so that you can have a unique code for the measure that you're, uh, you're taking uh, so that there's no way to uh, mix it up with some other measure. So it's, it's just making sense to you. So what's the, what's the ultimate goal of the codes? Well, okay, because right now you have a, a lab and you have some measures in there. So yeah, I'll give you, so for example, aerobic capacity, we've got six minute walk tests, 400 meter walk test, uh, two mile time, six or one mile time, VO2 max, sub max. So there, I think that's what I'm getting okay. at, or I'm sure. understanding you, where exactly. if you want to measure aerobic capacity, there's 15 plus different ways of doing it. So we need to get specific in the, in the target outcome. Yeah. And it even gets more specific than that. Like you can have a code for the six minute walk test, uh, all the way at uh, an answer and a code all the way down for the distance of it on six minute walk, walk test, the two minute walk test, the stand up and go, 
uh, all those different tests, some of them are already in LOINC, but most things aren't. And the one about VO2max is really important because that's, you know, some people call it aerobic capacity. Some people call VO2max and VO2peak the same thing. And then there's VO2max estimated you know, like on a bulky protocol, then there's VO2 max predicted with a formula, then there's VO2 max measured. And then some people are inter interested, well, can we do VO2 max based off 15 uh, second interval measurement rather than 30 seconds or a minute or whatever it is? I mean, so you can get as specific as one. Okay, this is the idea is to get these measures into the LOINC database so that you want to map your database to it and all the people around the world who do this kind of research map their local measure to LOINC and say, okay, I'm measuring VO2 max and this is my definition of max and uh, it's in liters per minute, so it's absolute. And this other one is relative. So you have a different code, relative and absolute. And you have maybe some people even do it net versus gross. So you take out resting metabolic rate, you know, that sort of thing. So you can get as specific as you want through all those, but you have a unique, unambiguous uh, code for that measure so that everybody in the world can map to that same code. So then you know this data is what this data says it is. That's exactly it. This is not that. This VO2max measure is not, not VO2max estimated. It's measured, and this is in liters per minute on this one is – ML per kg and that sort of thing. And this is gross, this is net. That's how you can do it. So Dan, now, what's the what's the goal with well, those? That's how you can then start getting the, the data into cancer link. They want it like that. That's how they want that kind of stuff. And then this is how hospitals take stuff into their electronic health records. And this is how hospitals send their electronic information around. Uh, their measures around. And this is what you get back from labs. Labs send this stuff out all the time. This is what lab already I have been doing and hospitals do this and you can do this for like I said for questionnaires as well I submitted all four IPAC uh, questionnaires the long form and short form uh, self-administered and long form and and short form interviewee um, codes for those as well and they're they're working through those but they're 90 days backed up yeah, and they only, they only release in June and July and December, and you have to have everything by the end of March to get out in June. And if they're ninety days backed up, you can see what I'm going to try to submit now before the June deadline probably won't get out until December, and might not even tell the you know the June after yeah. that. So it just takes time to get this stuff in there. And for me, I'm just a layperson doing this. I'm having to, to contact people and and. And I have to provide the source for that. And right now, I'm also going through American Thoracic Society's uh, stuff about cardiopulmonary exercise testing, their guidelines. So then you can just see here's here's uh, oxygen uptake efficiency slope. Okay, that's not in LOINC. We we need, let's let's get it in there so there'll be a code. And you just you just come off their definition and their formula. And there's and you can do it a different way. So maybe we'll have one for each different way you can do oxygen uptake efficiency slope. So things like that. So then, okay, then now you have a code. So now eventually everybody, if you start to map your databases to this, then you can start to maybe pool data. And I think there's power for the small cancer types that don't can't get exercise research right now because you can't get enough in a cohort in a hospital or yeah. even a regional hospital, maybe even in the U S but worldwide, you might be able to find maybe 120 subjects in a small cancer group uh, that you can then pull that data much more easily if you have a standard code for this, the same measures that you're all looking at. Um, and this is across uh, 
language. Yeah. And, but, and, the, and beauty of this is that you don't have to replace your database with all these codes. You can keep what you call it locally. So if you call aerobic, capa aer uh, aerobic capacity VO2, you know it's VO2 max. Yeah. And, and it's in terms of ML, ML per kg. Well, you can, you can map to that Loink code that's, that actually says it's different than what you, with how you, what you call it. And you can keep your local meaning, and that's really important, so you don't have to change everything. But if you know that's exactly what my measure is, I can take that link code and, and attach it to our local measure and our local codes. So you can use them both, and you can send them, send them both in messaging into EHRs, and physicians can see those. So you know, within your, within your hospital network, you can see your local name and number, and you, can say, you, you don't have to worry about the link one. But if you want to do it in a in an aggregate ba uh, basis or globally, you really should use the link codes. Are you the only person that's submitting these protocols to link? Well, uh, Phoenix, which uh, I think, uh, uh, God, what's his name out at Stanford? Uh, McCaskill? Not what's, sure. Uh, oh gosh, no, he's a, he's a, he, he did a lot of Met research. Oh geez. Uh, and I think uh, even Barbara Ainsworth, I think they did some uh, work with Phoenix, P-H-E-N-X, and they've submitted um, some phenotype uh, measures, and they have six-minute walk tests and things in there. So they've done those in there. So there are some people submitting them, but most people don't even know about them. Yeah. I mean, I, I got an email back today from somebody at the World Health Organization said, I don't even know what this link is. I've never heard of it. And uh, And that's what I find, and most people like, they don't know what it is, uh, but I, uh, if you look at uh, OpenM Health, which uh, Stanford's Connect um, Mobile uh, Health Center is doing, Mobilize Center is doing, they're writing uh, key schemas for um, um, mobile devices, and they they use LOINC codes and SNOMED codes in their schemas so that for steps and calories and physical activity, so that they see the utility of those. But, but what I see is that nobody's actually submitting a lot of these measures. And I thought, well, you know, I, I, since I stopped doing workout cancer because active against cancer is doing such a great job, I thought, well, uh, the, here's, a, here's a little gap that needs to be filled. I'll just try to submit a lot of these measures and, and see if we can get those on board. And then, then people will realize their use and they can – the first ones are subject to change. And there's a warning on that. So like this is subject to change. So people can modify these over time to get them more exact or add more uh, codes as well. And that's why I hope physical activity researchers will start doing this. Let's, let's start submitting some of these things. I don't envy the mountain of administrating <laughs> you've got to do to, to get these submitted. Um, but I certainly appreciate it. And listen, if there's, if there's people that can help out, um, I'll get you in touch with Ken because uh, – I think you need all the help you can get to get these get these in and get these done as soon as you can. So, you know, are you comfortable with people going through me or where can people get in touch with you to, to kind of help out with this stuff? Well, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Workout Cancer, and they, you could go through you. That's fine. Uh, I think, gosh, I'm a, there's a Facebook page, Workout Cancer, on Facebook. Um, got my email, two, that's the number two, contact. And that's at workoutcancer.org. So to contact at workoutcancer.org. So you can send me some stuff. And I, I, I send out inquiries. Um, 
gosh, I just did one. I got a nice response back uh, on the European, uh, gosh, uh, performance stat, uh, status uh, prior to um, stem cell transplant that we wanted to register some of their uh, measures that they, they have in a, in a graph and in a chart. So got a good response. Well, I wish you the best of luck with it. <laughs> hopefully, as I said, hopefully. I know it's it's kind of numbing and it probably bore everybody to death. But it's really a part of the standardization. As as you know, there was some some criticism that came out. I think um, Kristen Campbell and uh, a couple of her colleagues have done it twice in in breast cancer. Uh, that we need to pay better attention to the the principles of exercise um, uh, measurement. And uh, we're not doing a good enough job of that. And part of that is also getting into the IT side of tagging this. This is, this is really like making a SKU number for an exercise measure or barcoding an exercise measure. So put in a barcode to VO2 max, that's that, measured. That is probably yeah. the, the best and easiest way you've explained yeah, it. There you go. Beautiful. Exactly. Beautiful. <laughs> Um, well, yeah. listen, man, I really appreciate your time. I think it was a great insight into um, you being a progressive individual and researching um, how to best combat treatment. And also, I commend you on the work you've done, both with workout cancer and now uh, with the loink and trying to get it into a standard of care. So we really appreciate both your time and your efforts in trying to improve the standard of cancer care. Well, all the best to you heading down to Australia, right? For your postdoc? Yeah, yeah, I will. I'm heading down uh, pending visa background red tape stuff, hopefully here in the next couple of months. So um, I'll be sure to keep you and, and everyone updated on the process. I look forward to the podcast that you keep doing. You did a great job with them. Thanks. <laughs>